Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Here's your host, Stacy Jones. Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I'm Stacy Jones, and I'm so happy to be here with you all today and want to give a very warm welcome to Christopher Ungerbach. Christopher is the founder of TalkShift, a global movement that focuses on leadership language and teaches why strong communication leads to better results in both business and life. He is also the author of 22 Talk Shifts, a number one Wall Street Journal bestseller that shares numerous ways to strengthen communication. He's the former founder and CEO of an award-winning global tech company named after himself, Ungerbach, where he helped its value grow from $1 million to $200 million. Christopher is the recipient of St. Louis Business Journal's 40 Under 40 Award and has appeared in numerous publications such as NPR, Entrepreneur, Forbes, and more. Today, Christopher and I are going to be chatting about leadership, communication, and language. We'll learn what works from his perspective, what should be avoided, and how some businesses and leaders miss the mark. Christopher, welcome. So happy to have you here today. It's great to be here. Well, I love starting off always and having you share with our listeners your journey of how you got here today, not so much on the podcast, but you launched an amazingly successful business. I mean, wow, a $200 million evaluation is just a little, that's insane for most of our listeners to understand how one man can do that. But you've written a number one best-selling book. You've done so many things that are monumental. What drives you and got you here? What got me here? Uh, uh, so maybe the I would say what got me here is a uh, is, is, um, strong desire to make my father proud, uh, okay. and, uh, and and ultimately uh, never being able to do so. Which that's is the daddy yeah. issue, but it sounds yeah, like it's worked know, out well for you. It has uh, it has over the long over the it's been a, it's been a journey, but uh, yeah, that was actually part of the part of the kind of thing what led to the book uh, is. And what in I say in the beginning of the book um, that I found myself uh, at a YMCA uh, after building this you know two hundred million dollar company, I found myself looking in the mirror, uh, tears streaming down my cheeks, and I saw the leader that I'd become, which is a leader without followers. And so I had read all these business books and everything I wanted to do to make my father proud, and ultimately I realized that I kind of had become a pretty angry you know, uh, demanding, um, and maybe uh, we got great results, but there was uh, probably not with the most uh, compassionate style. Is that because of controlling more so? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of it was controlling and nothing was ever good enough. Uh, I was never like a yelling leader. Um, and ultimately I realized after I, so I wrote the book at, you know, after I found myself at the YMCA, I was like, I had read all these books and like, where did I go wrong? And ultimately, at the same time that I left my business uh, behind, my wife decided to leave me behind two weeks later. So I really had like my life was basically at ground zero. And, um, and I was like, well, what did I miss? And so I kind of threw out all the business books and that I'd been reading since I was 12 years old. And I just went and kind of surrounded myself with all the people that I would have judged as weird and far out and crazy back when I was a CEO thinking, you know, maybe I'll learn something from these people. And I always kept I always kept my, uh, you know, kind of CEO hat on thinking I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring some ideas back and kind of repackage them and translate them into, you know, words that work in a business context. Um, 
And that was really what kind of resulted in the book was taking all these things. When I would go on these kind of journeys and um, experiences, a good, a good uh, litmus test was, would a CEO kind of raise his eyebrows if I said, hey, I'm going to do this. And they'd be like, I would never do that. And I'd be like, then I'm going and I'm going to see what I'm going to learn. And so, and then, you know, kind of a lot of the stuff was things I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work in a business context. But what the ultimate thing that came out of it was a good blend of the kind of aggressive leadership style that you know, did result in a lot of our success, but with also the opposite of like the equally kind of compassionate language that probably led to my, the lack of compassionate language is what led to my downfall. So like, it was kind of the intention was to write a book that blends kind of the hard and the soft, if you will. Um, and I mean, with, you know, 2020 being what it was and, you know, quarantine and things like this book, I don't think would have been nearly successful, you know, prior to uh, 2020. But now it's, uh, in many respects, it's really, I would hope that's a little bit of a handbook for how to lead in this kind of new, you know, new world, what we're leading in. Um, I, I, part of what was language was really informed by the book, because I, I started businesses in France and Germany, and we actually had offices around the world. But I had to learn to lead in two foreign languages as an adult. And so language was really present uh, for me as I was writing the book and thinking of, you know, German's a very direct language, English and French are much more indirect in, in kind of different ways. Um, and I wanted to build tools that were practical fill in the blanks phrases that anyone could pick up. Like you finish chapter one of the book and you're like, wow, I've already got one phrase that I can use to change how I lead either in the context of my personal relationships or in my professional, you know, professional life. So that was uh, kind of what we did. And off you went to the races, getting a massive readership because people found what you were sharing to be spot on to what their needs are right now. Yeah, it's a, well, as you know, as a business owner, it's a, it's a different world. You know, we've got the great resignation going on. And I think my sense having worked outside of Europe, uh, outside of the U.S. and worked in Australia and Asia, I think it's a bigger than a great resignation there. I think there's more like a great renegotiation is happening that Americans are coming more towards the rest of the world in terms of work-life balance. When I moved to Germany, they said, oh, you Americans, you know, you, you all uh, live to work and we work to live. Yeah. And I, I've met uh, a friend of mine, uh, he's more of an acquaintance of mine. He's a kind of an executive at a pretty large brand, a Fortune 50 brand. Um, that everyone would uh, recognize. And he's, you know, all in with bonus. He's making about $400,000, $500,000 a year, uh, you know, in a kind of a Midwestern town. So like, you know, that's probably like, that's probably a million dollars. He's like California, a bazillionaire LA, right? because of yeah. that, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and he was like, they gave me a raise and like doubled my, uh, off, uh, an offer to double my responsibility. And it would have mean, you know, maybe a hundred or a thousand or more in compensation. And he's like, I turned it down. It just wasn't worth it to be gone an additional 40 nights a year, traveling with the responsibility. And at the same time, he's got this side gig with like an internet business. And I just said, so how many hours are you spending? And this is the reason why he reached out because he wanted to know what we were doing with you know, internet marketing. And, and I said, he said, I'm spending like 25, 30 hours a week on this. And so I said, let me get this straight. The company that 12 months ago or 18 months ago was paying you $400,000 for 60 hours of your time is now paying you $400,000 for 
15 to 20 hours of your time. And there are a lot of top performers out there that kind of, you know, basically are sometimes our best employees. I, my belief is that our best employees quit and leave because they can find something else. But a lot of people, maybe it's even some of our best employees who have golden handcuffs, you know, because they've got stock options or whatever. They don't quit and leave. They quit and stay. So what does quitting and staying mean? Quitting and staying means, well, in the simplest thing is saying, saying, you know, I used to be really committed to my job and I would think about it, you know, on my drive home and in the shower and on weekends. And now I'm just going to like spend more time with my family and like once five o'clock rolls around, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to flip off the switch and, and that I'll turn it back on at 9am or whatever my first meeting is tomorrow. Yeah, that's, that's probably a, a good, a good one. And then the, the more serious one is when someone says, you know, I'm actively going to, you know, eat into the 40 hours per week that I'm being paid almost as a, um, you know, it's kind of like the old equivalent of like somebody in a manufacturing, it's the white collar equivalent of someone in a manufacturing plant laying down on the job because they just don't like their boss. I had one, one reader of the book who did work in more of kind of a blue collar setting most of his career told me about stories where he, I think he was working in like a, a, a like a, a car repair shop, right? And he was thinking of like his communication. He told me he actually had cases where employees actually would lay down on the job when he would ask him to do something and he said, what are you doing? He's like, they wanted to get him fired. <laughs> they hated so, him that much. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, this happens, this doesn't just happen in blue collar. I mean, it happens in the office too. It's just called solitaire or, you know, whatever computer game or Facebook you have on your other your tab before you shift tab over if somebody's looking over your shoulder. Well, I think COVID showed us a lot of things this last year. We saw in the news, the stories about, oh, so-and-so has a 40-hour job, and they were just found out that they had another 40-hour job that they were doing at the same time, had two computers set up, and they would literally just be moving to one to the other and phasing out on calls and figuring out and scheduling their days so that they could get two incomes. I mean, this is something that's legitimately happening right now, yeah, right? Yeah. But I think that that's where we as leaders, I mean, I've, you know, having been a CEO, I've, you know, I still have a lot of friends for CEOs. And I, I, I find myself frequently saying, I am so happy that I'm not a CEO of a big company longer because it's so challenging. Like we are not only are we competing with that where employees can work two jobs or have a side gig, like, um, I mean, we're competing with people who potentially that side gig is probably either being their own boss or maybe contributing to someone else in their life where they're starting something up and trying to do. And ultimately, you know, it's hard enough to win talent to come to work for our companies, but then we get them inside the walls. And then it's like, well, do you like your boss? So ultimately every single leader, we're not just competing as companies for talent, but each leader is competing for mind share of each person. Right. And every, all of our communication, I just read a story, uh, uh, a survey it was in both Harvard Business Review and Inc. Magazine, and I'll get the words exactly, I won't get the words exactly right, but it was 91% of a thousand employees surveyed rated communication skills as a lack of communication as the biggest problem with their, with the leader, with leaders that they work for. And so, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it's about having better, if you want to change how you lead and you want to change your results, it's actually as simple as changing your words. And part of that can be very difficult, I think, for leaders because they have 
so much stress that's put on them, so much pressure, so much bandwidth that they're finding that they're running around and having to not only figure out how to run their companies, but now they're having to figure out how to not be a therapist to their team members, but to a degree and where they're taking on different roles of trying to inspire and enlighten and educate and teach and get that continual buy-in by showing that their team rah, rah, rah of this individual, even when you don't necessarily want to be team rah, 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 because you're thinking about the detriment to the business and what's happening in order to allow these individuals to pursue their passions, their dreams, their you know, best being of who they want to be while still working within your box of a company. Yeah. Well, I think as leaders, one of the things I realized as a CEO, I think that ultimately, um, you know, I think the reason why we were able to build this great company is that we had a vision that great people wanted to follow. Right. And so, you know, we, my vision was like, we're going to build a billion dollar company. And a lot of great people were like, I want to be part of that. That's, you know, especially when we were smaller and, um, but what I realized after I left is that, you know, is there's really two tools that we have as leaders to get to kind of inspire followership. One is a vision or a purpose that people want to be part of. And the only people who really have that tool at their disposal is kind of the CEO, you know, a couple people at the top, you know, maybe you're a president of a division or something like that. Uh, and then the other tool is to be someone that people want to follow. Right. And, and so that's the only tool that all of us, you know, every leader up and down the organization actually has at their disposal. And ultimately, I think that my downfall as a leader was that I may I feel like I feel I had a vision that people wanted to follow, but I wasn't someone that people mm -hmm. wanted to follow. And um, and I think that if you have both of those, then that's really kind of the magic point. I mean, we would have I'm, I'm quite certain we would have already been a billion dollar company um, before I retired if uh, if we had had. Uh, that kind of combination. It's not an easy combination to come up with though, either. You know, actually, I think it's, I, well, I wrote the book because I think it's a lot easier than, I, you know, okay. I, I tried for five or six years once I started to get feedback that I was maybe a little bit too demanding, a little bit too direct. Um, you know, I, often I hear this, like people saying, oh, you're too sensitive. And I used to say things like that. And I say, you know, consider that if you ever think that other people are too sensitive, consider the other possibility that you're too insensitive. And that was probably a big part of, you know, kind of my leadership style as I was not, it wasn't necessarily that other people were insensitive, too sensitive, it was that I was too insensitive. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about, and I was, I spent a long time reading and thinking of how to really bridge the gap. Like, how do I blend this kind of aggressive, demanding, we're going to do amazing things kind of style with mm -hmm. a kind of more compassionate style that people can kind of, you know, say, hey, this is a person that I want to follow. And I honestly, I'd never really I never really found before I left uh, the company that we built, uh, I never really found the answer. And that was kind of what I went seeking is, you know, and what I found is that it's actually not, you know, a lot of the new age people would say, we got to change what's in our heart or what's inside of us. Uh, but being someone who learns separate languages is if you want to change your words that you speak to others, you know, let's say, let's say I change what's in my heart, but I still speak to you the same way. Like, how do you know that I change what's inside? Like, I'm like this, you know, soft-hearted person inside, but I still use harsh words. So I actually believe it's the opposite. If I change my words, I can actually change myself from the outside in. Uh, and ultimately, even if I don't change myself, it, let's say I'm as hard-hearted as I ever was, but I use more compassionate language with you, do you really care? 
know, if ultimately the out that what what is presented to you is more compassionate leadership style and more understanding and support for your kind of goals and objectives and passions. Um, so that for me is, you know, we wrote the book 22 talk shifts. Each chapter has specific questions or fill in the blanks phrases that you can use to lead in different situations and get better results. When you're diving in and talking about the great resignation and you're sharing that, you know, a lot of people are going off and trying to, you know, work for another company or, you know, we have the whole new world of hustling, right? So like, this is, everyone wants to be a hustler. Everyone wants their side gig. Everyone wants to like, they want to be the entrepreneur and creator of their own future. Mm -hmm. How does one handle that? Knowing that, you know, you're talking about sensitivities, you're talking about not being insensitive, you're talking about wanting to build employees. How does a leader navigate that? And, you know, it used to be you signed my employment agreement, you cannot work for anyone else any longer. And that just doesn't hold. So what do you do? Well, I mean, ultimately, the only way to win is to provide people something that they want to do that's more interesting. And I think that I think there's two, well, I think there's two things that we as leaders need to look at is, and, and I think a big part of what I do is also, it's not just about leadership in the context of business, it's also about leadership in a marriage or family or as a parent, right? So, and I think it boils down to the same thing. We need to what are, what are the behaviors and things we do to that convince others to say, hey, I'm excited to do this or spend more time with this person, whether it's a, at work or, or follow them in that way uh, or in personal life. And then I need to minimize the behaviors that cause people to shut down and be like that Stacy or that Krista or whatever. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I know that my shareholders, which was one of my challenges is I spent more time sometimes laying in bed, like thinking like, I want to wring those people's neck, right? And I'm like, those were not times that I was thinking about problems for the company, right? So if I have 40 or 60 hours a week, all the time that I spend at the water cooler or gossiping with other employees about how I'm so angry about what somebody did, that's time that's not spent working. So we need to kind of minimize here and then maximize the, maximize the good and minimize the bad. And I think to your point is, I think that one of the biggest challenges with leaders is, you know, if we don't get our stress under control and what happens is those negative moments that typically cause people to quit and leave or quit and stay are usually things that happen in moments of stress or in anger, frustration and disappointment. Yeah. yeah. So when I was on a journey kind of building the book, one of the things before I was, when I was CEO, we actually stopped asking when employees leave, like, why are you leaving? They're like, oh yeah, I found a really cool gig. And like, you know, it's the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm moving to another city. And we were like, oh, well, of course we couldn't have avoided that. But when we started to ask them the question, tell me about the day you, you decided to update your resume. Tell me about, you know, it's not, our job as leaders is not to stop people from leaving. It's to stop people from looking. Right. And ultimately, whether it's a marriage or a job or even like parents and children were, you know, stopping people from looking for other alternatives in terms of people that they want to spend more time with. And, um, and when we found the days that people started looking, it was almost invariably, oh, I remember, like my boss said this to me that day. And uh, ultimately I ended up getting divorced. And so I applied the same thing to when I was dating. And I would say, tell me about the day you decided to leave your marriage. 
and every woman could tell me the exact. I mean, like there some would be like, I can tell you exactly what I was wearing the day. And often it was two, three, four years later before they actually ended their marriage, mm-hmm. but they left so much earlier and employees do the same thing. And so one of the, one of the talk shifts that's later in the book is about anger. Um, and usually anger is in a business context. If I ever ask a leader, like what emotion are you experiencing around this situation? Like I'm frustrated. Well, that's just a synonym for anger. I say like, well, what's another word? I'm disappointed. That's just another synonym for anger. So I think that anger is probably getting control of our anger is one of the most kind of practical things we can do. And in the book, uh, the tool we use for that, I think it's like talk shift number 19, is uh, the title is the um, anger conceals the keys to connection. Mm-hmm. If I tell you that I'm angry at you or disappointed or frustrated at, with you as an employee, I put you in a state of fear, most likely. Like, you know, is that Stacey going to fire me right now? Or Chris, you're going to fire me right now? Um, and the neuroscience shows that as soon as we do that, we put someone like the part of their brain that's responsible for creative thought shuts down. Fight or flight. Yeah. So I'm afraid and you're frustrated with me. And now I'm actually mentally, physically in a you know state where I'm actually less able to solve the problem that caused you to be frustrated or disappointed in the first place. Right. And so the the tool that we use in that talk shift is whenever I'm angry is I ask myself, what's the emotion behind my anger? Um, Because uh, the psychologists will say that anger is a core emotion, but it's not a a primary emotion. It's usually a byproduct of a deeper emotion. And the the question is, the talk shift is, it's a multiple choice question. What's the emotion behind anger? Is it fear, sadness, hurt, guilt, or shame or embarrassment is another word. And it's a multiple choice question where you can only pick one of those five because there's always one of them that was like, that's the closest. Um, And so once I understand the emotion that's behind my anger, I can now have my, I can have a conversation with the person about that. So it can be, hey, you know, I'm afraid. You know, I'm afraid uh, if it's in a personal relationship, I'm afraid of losing you. I mean, if you're you're a leader and you've got a key employee, you could say, I'm afraid of losing you, right? And, uh, And I don't know, what's going to happen. And yeah, that's a vulnerable conversation. Does that put the other employee in possibly like, uh, you know, we, you think, well, the we power would power position. Yeah. But you know what? I, I, I don't know as, as somebody who was kind of one of those employees for many years in all the companies I worked for, who was kind of one of the key players, like, do you think they don't know it already? I mean, <laughs> really? I mean, your top three people in your company or your team, they know that they're like, they're pretty certain that if they walk out the door and what keeps them there is either their connection to you as the leader or the purpose of the company, or maybe it's the work that they do. They just love, or it's because they don't want to walk out the door and leave their friends and team members behind holding like the huge hole that, you know, is created. Right. Or they're fearful themselves of the unknown. That is, well, that, that's a, let's say if we, that's a negative factor uh, that may keep them. Um, You know, I think that, uh, if we focus on the positive factors that would okay. keep them, yeah, so, but you're correct. Uh, I would say the, all are things equal, the, the people who are at the higher end of the performance spectrum are less likely to be fearful. Mm-hmm. I would say, um, I mean, not, not to a T, but you know, if you're taking any, uh, you know, pop star or sports star, if they won, you know, if they, they won a Grammy or, uh, they're going to get on another team. They're pretty sure they're going to find another yeah. team at that point. You know? <laughs> Um, and that's really ultimately our challenge as leaders. It's not, 
it's really key. What do we do to keep those top people? Because those are the ones that, you know, if you, if you lose the best people and you replace them with mediocre people and the, the, what the challenges is that then the mediocre or the bottom performers, they, they can't find something better. So now they're the ones that quit and stay. And then it's really difficult to attract a top performer again, because they're like, wait, I'm, I got to drag these other 10 people along by me. I'm with the duds. Yeah. So it becomes a downward, uh, it can become a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I think that my sense is what's probably going to be happening and continue happening over the next six to 12 months is there's going to be this kind of flight to quality. The employee, the employers that are willing to renegotiate the kind of work contract with employees of, you know, more work-life balance. And we're going to build a work culture that's going to fit into your life Mm -hmm. and fit around your life. And yeah, we're going to still have demands that we need the work done, but those are the employers that are going to win the best people. And I think it's going to become increasingly harder for the companies that aren't willing to renegotiate that contract to, to keep great people. Yeah, it's interesting. I belong to an agency ownership group and we meet a couple of times a year and we're there and we support each other and agency owner after agency owner, you know, they're losing their staff, they're losing their team. And we're a little different at our agency where we're growing our team right now, where we have, you know, tripled in size um, since COVID versus reduced. And you still have, you know, people who come in, don't fit the culture or who come in and you know, it's just not the right buy-in and they have something else to do, or there's a communication error, whatever it might be. That's always going to, this there. But I have heard the stats that 40 to 70% of employees are leaving agencies. And that's not just other businesses, but like agency specific. And then at the same time, hearing that stat, knowing that it's true, because I've seen it through peer groups, hearing other agencies going, don't worry. Don't worry about, you know, trying to figure out a compensation structure. Don't worry about trying to do unlimited everything. Don't worry because it's going to write itself. And I don't think it's going to write itself. I think this is a permanent shift and change in our entire culture. Well, so what do you think it is about why agencies? Yeah, I mean, I have like some thoughts that pop to mind. Uh, I think because it's very fast moving. I think there's yeah. a lot. I think that the stress life um, and, and management at agencies is very different. And we were just interviewing someone the other day. I wasn't even supposed to interview her and someone else got called out. So I jumped in on it and she turned to me and she said, so, you know, the structure that I'm looking for, just so you know, I was like, oh, really? Okay. Is that, you know, I like starting to work around nine or nine 30 and I work for a few hours and then I like going to the gym and having lunch with some friends. And then, you know, I'll come back and do some more work, but I'm out by five. And, you know, I'm like, well, you know, for one, I'm like, I'm not sure what, what world that actually works in, in general, besides you're doing your own thing world, but maybe you could work for a brand But in an agency, like we have weekend things, evening things, clients who need something. Oh, there's a snafu. We need to jump in and do this now. It's a very hectic, like wild roller coaster of the highest highs and the lowest lows. And that's kind of agency life. So I think that might be a driver for it. That was my initial thought. I mean, knowing a little bit about agency and consulting is kind of the same. I imagine, you know, big law firms, it's like, you know, those are, it's a little bit more of a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a tougher job. It's a more demanding job. 
And I, I think that I suspect that it's a function of this re renegotiation that people, more people are saying that I don't know if I necessarily want that. I want more balance. And that's the challenge that uh, I cannot, yeah, that for agency owners and other people in those in businesses that have traditionally been like 50, 60 hour, you know, kind of job. 80. Yeah. <laughs> 90, 100, 120. I worked in in consulting my first couple of years. And yeah, I was uh, in the kind of sleeping under the desk every once in a while. Uh, Yeah. So, which is great in your 20s. Not so great when you got, you know, kids and stuff. No. And as, but it's also, it's, it's a very different world as an agency owner to try to shift in when that has been your culture. And, you know, when I'm talking to peer groups who are in their 40s and 50s or 60s, this is the world they grew up in and this is how they know how to run their businesses. And then all of a sudden being like, you want to be paid more, actually, not the same for less hours and that you're gone at five and you're not doing the proposal or the scope of work. And at the same time, not being able to say, oh, well, you know, don't worry, the brands will just pay us more money to cover from what you're doing. It makes it much harder. Yeah, I I agree. (laughs) All the reasons why I'm... uh... You're so happy. Maybe, maybe, maybe after it all kind of settles down in another two or three years, I'll be uh, get back to the CEO gig. Uh, so, it is not a it is not an easy time to be a leader of a business or a team uh, yeah. these days. And uh, do you think we think- were on this path anyways, and COVID just sped it up, like they sped up so many other things, or do you think COVID itself shifted all of us? I think COVID shifted because I because I think that it's. It's a, you know, I think people, well, one, I think I was the work from home thing was like a lot of company leaders at the very high top, like started to realize, well, we have to do it. Right. So now that like, just kind of like opened the floodgates, I think for, I, I say zoom uh, in one of the parts of the book, I say zoom broke down the walls between our personal and professional lives. Right. So now we have these tools that kind of open up the floodgates of like, you know, we were able to stem, we were in a tech company and we were able to stem the tide of like work from home for many years. Uh, we were fortunate we had, you know, we'd won five top workplace awards and we had 99.3% employee engagement. So we did have an amazing culture that kind of caused people to want to stay. Um, and, but now, I mean, it's like, well, even now, like my company, I'm still an owner uh, that, everybody's working from home. And so you've got that side, but then it's like, everybody's there with their kids. And then there's this emotion of like people losing people and all the things on the news. And so I think there was this just great questioning, right. Of what really is important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that regard, I don't think that my sense is, I don't think that it would have changed in the U S if, because the rest of the world is already that way except for maybe China and Hong Kong and, you know, India, maybe to some degree. Well, actually I say India probably was a pretty hard driving work culture as well. But if you go to Australia or the UK or any other developed country outside of, um, I don't think there's anywhere near the kind of aggressive work culture uh, that existed in the United States, you know, two years ago and, and for the hundred years, hundreds of years before. And I still think there's a good work culture. It's just different. Like now we're finding ourselves with a lot of hustlers as employees, right? That they want their side gig. They want to develop their own thing of whatever it might be on Etsy or this or that. Um, and so there's, it's a split time of attention. Well, I think that, that I think will probably come to an end. I mean, um, the reality is, is to build a business, like a side hustle, like, I mean, 
ultimately we're, it's mostly an online marketing business. Like how do you get the people buy your Etsy shop? I mean, and we're doing that. One of the things that's really unique from a marketing side is we're basically marketing this book almost exclusively with Facebook ads. And like the, that, that was this executive from the large fortune 500 company. He's got a side gig. He's like, I'm going to sell some supplements online. And I said, well, do you have an extra like quarter million dollars sitting around? Because it's probably going to cost you that much to actually find out how to actually make money selling with Facebook ads or YouTube ads or whatever. So, I mean, I think that there's this initial kind of, oh, I'm going to start my Etsy shop or I'm going to write my book or I'm going to do whatever. And then when it's done and the crickets start, you know, kind of the deafening sound of crickets and, you know, like, you really like when you got, if you, you really got to turn the crickets into the clickets. <laughs> And that costs a lot of money, uh, yes. approximately $25 per, <laughs> if you're doing it really well. So, uh, yeah. So I think that a lot of that kind of side gig, like online business side gig is probably going to go away as, uh, and people are going to have some very painful, expensive mistakes. Yeah. But some people I... are, the, the one challenge is the people who are going to make it are the best people. Yeah. <laughs> so the other ones who are kind of doing it as a side hustle as uh, maybe more more vision and less delivery are the ones that uh, are going to kind of come back around. Which probably talks about their general who they are at the office anyways. Yep. Yep. So how can our listeners learn and find out more about you? Uh, so for like keynote speaking and things I do, you can go to Christer dot com so Krista with a k that's my first name and the, the book is available of course on amazon uh we also have a lot of uh we give the book away part of our mission is we're giving away 100 percent of profits uh, once i sold my company where our mission is to change the words of the world so 100 percent of the profits from everything we do around the book um, is going to causes that help us to change the words of the world both at work and within families and so if you want to uh, help support the effort rather than uh, Jeff Bezos is uh, growing a fortune uh, on Amazon. You can go to talkshift.com and you can get the book there. Um, we also have audiobook and there's a video book format that you can actually watch on your smart TV with your family. Um, and if you want to use the book in a professional context, the video book allows you to share any chapter individually with anyone, even anonymously. So if your boss is a micromanager, you can share chapter nine with them anonymously, and maybe maybe things will start to shift. That's awesome. I will say I am absolutely inspired and will be purchasing your book because there is so many things that you've touched on that I know impact our agency and me as a leader. And leaders can always improve. I mean, that's, that's why we're here. We are trying to improve our businesses. We're typically trying to improve ourselves. We don't just always know and have the guidelines and the guardrails of how to do it. And it seems that you have really dialed in through your own trials and tribulations and experiences into helping others figure that out. Yeah. Well, next year in 2022, we are going to start coaching programs for leaders. Uh, our intention again is to do it much more affordably. Uh, with where we do group coaching so that people can learn from one another, but really working through real situations. Um, and uh, and again, all the profits go to change the words of the world. So that's any last words of parting advice to all those listenings going, I wish my leadership knew this, or I wish I as a leader knew this. Uh, I think it's just, you, you don't need to change people 
uh, you know, we, when we're frustrated with someone at work or at home, we often start with, we need to change that person. Mm -hmm. um, and so it ultimately leads to like a lot of manipulation. And what I found and why I wrote the book is I realized that you don't need to change people. Um, you simply need to change your words and the people will follow. Okay. Well, that is a lovely note to end on. So Christopher, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. I greatly appreciate your time and your thoughts and your insights. Thank you very much for the invitation. I appreciate it, Stacey. Of course. And to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Marking Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. And as always, if you're ever interested in figuring out how third parties can help you paint a picture of your brand, not change them, um, reach out to our agency at Hollywood Branded so that we can chat about product placement and influencer marketing, celebrity endorsements, and all those ways you can leverage others to help carry your message uh, far beyond. Have a great one.